Hello, my name is Eugene Ellis. I'm a psychotherapist and founder of the Black and Asian Therapist Network, also known as Bartle. These podcasts are a continuing conversation around the psychological life of black and Asian people in the UK. On this podcast, I'll be talking to Dr. Aisha Mackenzie Mavinga, who is an integrative transcultural psychotherapist and author of Black Issues in the Therapeutic Process and In Search of Mr. Mackenzie. She gives us a very intimate and personal narrative of her life as a young child in care and her life as a young woman fighting to keep her baby from adoption and from having her child have the life that she had in care. She also talks about her experience in training to become a counsellor and how it had mirrored her early experience of being marginalised as well as experiencing racism in the form of denial as she tried to express herself on the course. Later on, whilst training others in the area of race, she found that white people also hurt too in this space. She also, of course, talks about her book, which is about the process of dialogue around black issues. Here is Dr. Aisha Mackenzie Mavinga. Hello, Aisha. Uh, welcome to the podcast. We've known each other for a few years now. You've been in the background and you've been in the foreground helping me to develop the network. As well as that, the ideas in your writing have personally um, helped me develop my, my own voice around black issues and around issues of oppression. So I'm, I'm really glad you're here. As well as, a, as being an author, you're a psychotherapist, a Reiki practitioner, a trainer, a supervisor, a poet. So there's lots of strings to your bow. Uh, there's so much we can get into, but before we get to, into some of that, um, what has made you who you are today and how has therapy and, and counselling influenced that? Okay, I would say that, um, first of all, uh, what has made me is being a person who was raised in care, being a black girl raised in care. Right. Um, raised in an institution by white Westerners, um, being, being raised in a, a home for Jews that was converting Jews into Christians feeling all the time that something wasn't quite right about having my identity taken away from me um, as a Jewish um, girl, but also being raised with white people who never, ever discussed my black identity with me. Mm. And then also um, having a father who who died at um, when I was four months old. Right. Um, he was from Trinidad and... A Jewish mother who who what I wasn't raised by, right? Um, so that influenced me in that I always had this yearning to belong somewhere, and realised that, that I wasn't getting any help with that, right? Um, <clears throat> so and you and the the Jewish identity was that pretty much to the fore, I guess at that time. Um, no, it wasn't. Right. I mean, I di- I didn't realise I was Jewish, even though I was in a home for Jews and I was right. being raised with Jewish children. Okay. Um, yeah. Because they were. The, the people who were running the home were Jew- converted Jews. They'd converted to Christianity. Right. And they were um, rescuing people, um, children from the kinder transport. Okay. Um, um, so Jewish children who were refugees and, right, right. Um, and, and other Jewish children whose parents couldn't take care of them. Mm. And they were converting them. They were missionaries. They were converting them to Christians. Right. So my first experience of oppression 
and having my identity right. dis- disseminated yeah. um, was as a very, very young black mixed heritage person um, in, a, in a care home because right. I, I was there from the age of five months old right. until right. I was 16. Oh, okay, wow. Yeah. Right. So I never went back home, but I had contact with my mother a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had no information about my father. And I had siblings who were a good deal older than me. Um, so I wasn't actually raised in the same institution as them. Mm-hmm. And they had a different experience because they also spent more time at home with my mother. Right. Um, so I, I was like the outsider. Mm of my sibling group mm-hmm. and also of a family. Mm-hmm. And so I had this long sense, there's this great sense of um, not belonging mm-hmm. and confusion really about my identity. Sure. Um, but I spent a good deal of my childhood not speaking, not really saying much to adults and adults not saying anything much to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose I had this inner strength that I knew I was nurturing, which kept me safe. Mm-hmm. And helped me to rebel mm. when I felt as though there was injustice. Mm. Um, and so I have a strong sense of rebellion in me. Right. Um, and righteousness, you know, that I am entitled to myself. I'm entitled to my identity. Right. And did and you feel that at 16 when you came out? Or is that something you developed? I developed afterwards? it. I think I developed it... Um, I'd say between 16 and 30. Right. Um, and that was because I had children. Um, I was a gym slip mum. Mm-hmm. And so I went through all the things that we don't really want our children to go through. Right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah. I suppose that gave me a lot of empathy as well. Mm. Um, I, was, I was coerced to go to a, a mother and baby home run by nuns because I'd I'd committed a cardinal sin, you know, being pregnant and not married. Right. Um, at 17. Uh-huh. At 16, in fact, because I had my first child at 17. Um, and so I rebelled against having my first child adopted. Right. I did go, but I I knew what was going on there. Yeah. And yeah. I decided, no, this is a black child. Um, I don't want to repeat the cycle. I'm going to break the chain. I'm taking my child out of this place with me. And I did. So, um, you could see history. I could see history repeating itself because in the basement of that um, mother and baby home, there was a nursery where the black children had grown into toddlers because they were not, they had not been um, adopted at six weeks old. Ah, yeah. Um, Yeah. uh, So, So they were sort of left. They were left. Because I guess no one wanted those children. Basically, yes, yeah. similar. So yeah. they were in care, but they weren't taken into families, mm-hmm. you know. And the white children had been mm-hmm. taken away at six six weeks old. Right. So that was a sign for me of, yeah. of you know, sure. there was some form of rejection going on, institutional rejection. And yeah. therefore, um, I needed to make sure that this, this didn't happen to any of my children. Yes, yes. So I was a smart young teenager. Yeah, it was very clear to you about, I mean, it was clear because it was right there yeah but I mean it sounds like you were bringing a lot to it as well I I, I was I thought I thought I yeah. thought to be the parent of my first child right um you, you know an adversity and you know stigma and yeah, yeah sort of you know people thinking you, you have to get rid of this child and then come back into society and nobody mm. know you 
you've committed this sin. Mm. You know, so it made you feel really bad. Mm. So from there, I grew stronger. Um, we got, I ended up taking the baby back to my sister's house. Yeah. And I got a job and I started to make my way mm. as a young single mother. Mm-hmm. Um, so jumping from there to, say, the late 70s, um, I started to do a bit of work in a youth club um, in Lewisham. Right. And um, just out of wanting to, curiosity really, wanting to do something in the community and find my way out of just being a mother. I had two daughters and a son by then. Right. In this youth club, there were a lot of black young men that used to go and hang hang around up there. Yeah. And uh, they had a, a, a little coffee bar so and it was a bar where you could like sell sweets and things mm-hmm. so i used to go behind there uh when they wanted to buy something mm. and as they came and bought bought a sweet or a lolly or whatever i would talk to them mm. and they started to share their problems with me mm. so they were young black men they were teenagers and i realized that i had a certain listening skill mm. you know they mm. wanted to talk to me they found it easy to talk mm. so i started a group mm-hmm. um outside of the coffee bar put the chairs around and they come and we talk and they share things about their lives mm. um so and then after that i got a job at um one of those glc uh projects where they wanted to encourage people back into work long-term unemployed okay yes and i right. got a job and i think it's my first full-time job and um my job was outreach support worker mm-hmm. so i was there my position was that i would support people who had whatever kinds of problems that may prevent them from focusing on doing the training so they could get into a job. Okay, yeah. So I was I was that person. And then but it wasn't my um it wasn't my work role to be a counsellor, even though whenever there was an emotional problem they would call on me. Right. Yeah. Um and then they had the they at the in the meantime they were advertising the job for counsellor. And guess who got the job? Aileen. Oh right, okay. <laughs> Aileen Aileen right, yeah. got the job. Okay. Um, so, yeah. so she came in and sort of took part of my job, which was supporting. Because <laughs> you had the sort of pra- more practical role, I guess. Yeah. That's right. Like, okay. Yeah. Um, so I thought, well, I've been doing this job really well. <laughs> why? Why have they got someone else to do it? Yeah. And then I had this um, inspiration. Well, actually, I've been doing a good job, but I'm not trained. Aileen was trained. Mm. She was trained a trained counsellor at the time. She's another black counsellor. Yeah, another black woman. Yeah, you know, black woman who's doing great things. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So that was our, my first meeting with Aileen was right. when she came and took my job, I thought. <laughs> um, but not really, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I got a bit jealous. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, no, my nose is not out of joint here. This is a sign. And I went and trained at the Westminster Pastoral Foundation yes. um, to be a counsellor. Mm-hmm. Um so thank you, Aileen. <laughs> Jealousy is not so bad. <laughs> no, absolutely. And we've been friends ever since. Yeah, We'd yeah, done yeah. a doctorate together, metanoia. Mm. So while I was at the Westminster Pastoral Foundation, while I was in my training, um, I experienced this sense of it being okay to be there, but a sense of rejection and marginalisation mm. by the staff. Mm-hmm. There I was again. Mm. The only black person. I was going to say the only black child mm. in a training yeah, yeah. organization. Yeah. Yeah. In an institution. Yeah. You yeah. know. 
um, but not feeling that it was really my home, not feeling that as though I was really wanted there, yeah. that anyone really cared about who I really was. Mm. They just wanted me to learn all this theory, regurgitate it, and, and apply it to clients. Mm. And I, again, the rebellion in me came out mm. because I thought, actually, I want to be included. This is also about me. You mm. know, I'm, I'm a black woman. I'm doing this. I'm being given white clients and something is going on that I'm not that comfortable about and I need to talk about it somewhere. Mm. So the training course didn't really want to know. We had experiential groups where I tried to, to share what was going on for me and I got a barrage of racism in the form of denial back. Yes. So I'd walk out of that group. I'd just walk out because I couldn't cope with okay. not being accepted. And what um, was that like <clears throat> for the Institute to experience well, that? I think they didn't know what to do with me because yeah. um, I was very um, sort of I was angry. Yeah, I was angry, and I, you know it was my childhood as well as hmm. um, what was going on in the course. Hmm. Hmm. Um, so there was one. I had one ally, and that was a white gay man because uh-huh. he felt marginalised yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we became friends, and I had some support. So I stayed. I stayed in the um, the training course. Hmm. Um, but um, and they used to say to me well come back and process it you know I said mm-hmm. but what can I process if you're going to try and make me feel like it's not happening mm-hmm. you know um, but anyway I got through the course and I noticed on the course that clients they had this book where they put refer- the names of referrals people who have been referred mm-hmm. for counselling because we used to um, counsel on the premises and have our supervision on the premises where we okay. were training. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in this book, I used to look through this book, and in this book, when there was a black client, when it, where it said West Indian or uh, African, hmm. they always seemed to stay at the back of the book. So it, it appeared as though those clients were not being taken up. Right. Um, because they would allocate the clients to you based on what they felt your ability was. Yes, yes. And it appeared as though they were not giving um, trainees black clients and maybe they felt because they, they, they would have things on the uh, referrals like borderline okay borderline psychotic you know and it, they all seem to be in relation to a black client right um so, well they were seen as too hard then for these mm, students right? yeah and that's what it appeared to me mm. so uh, in my sharpness i thought something not right here mm, mm. um so i came out of that institution feeling like I needed a purge, mm. you know, I'd taken in something that wasn't quite me mm. and I was unhappy um, and I had to heal from being in that training. Mm. But I learned that I had a belief that there was something here that could change. Mm. And at the same time, on the outside of the training, I had um, support from my, my black peers, my black friends, mm. and I got involved with a group that were doing anti-racist anti-racism, anti-sexism training. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot about myself mm-hmm. as a black woman and our stuff between us mm-hmm. as yeah. black people. Yes. yes. And how I was hiding myself away both as a woman and as a black person. Mm-hmm. Um, so half my life was spent mainly with women and mainly with black women. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have much contact with men. I didn't have much contact with white people. Right. And I was kind of closeted, you know, so I, had, I went through this healing process and then went out to do some 
anti-racism training with this group, mm -hmm. which was a mixed group, white and black. So we learned to talk to each other mm -hmm. and to challenge each other and mm. to acknowledge what was going on, mm. you know, mm. and to work through that process and what it meant to us personally. Mm. Um, well, it's a rare space as well, isn't a it? A rare really? space, it was. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, and you learned a lot about yourself. You learned a lot about, I guess, the, the uh, black-white divide in between what happened. Absolutely. For the other and for you, yeah. That's right. Wow. And it was tough. It was yeah. very tough, yeah, you tough know, work. painful. Yeah. Um, but worth it. Mm. Um, so I took that and I made a suggestion to the institute where I trained mm -hmm. that I could possibly run some short courses on racism in psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. And I did. They allowed me to. Okay. Yeah. Interesting thing is that they wouldn't give me a job as a counsellor there because I felt that they'd stigmatised me as a single parent. Um, right. And, you know, I felt like they'd made a, de a decision about my life that I couldn't cope right. with being a single parent. Okay. And, yes. you know... It would burden you with yeah. extra stuff. Right? Yeah. Okay. Um, but, even but, though I, I had trained. I yeah. was trained. It was assumption, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I went back in and um, presented short courses on racism in counselling and psychotherapy. Okay. And that was the first time I gave something back to the world of counselling and psychotherapy, mm. but was able to um, present it in in the terms of my experience, mm. you know, that this is important and that it mustn't be denied. Mm. Yeah. I mean, how was the, what was that like? Because I know, I know colleagues who have done that. Um, and it's an exhausting process. It's exhausting to do that, that kind of work. And sometimes they give up on it and just say, well, it's just too hard. Or I mean, what was that experience like for you? Was there satisfaction in it? It's two-sided, really, a okay. double-edged sword, right. you know. Um, there's my determination to change the situation yes. and to influence people and get stuff out there, you yeah. know, and, and uh, assist um, people to open their minds. Yes. And then there's throwing yourself into the lion's den mm. with a group of mainly white therapists mm. usually in those situations it'd be predominantly white except for me yes who want to pick your work to pieces mm. um, they're fascinated so they'll come to the training um, but there's something extra that they need in terms of opening them up to mm. what you're really saying because mm. they also went through the same training as me mm. Mm. they too went through a training which denied them mm. the experience of working Ethnically, ethnically, mm. if you like, or mm -hmm. or with the other, or with black people, or with the issues of racism mm -hmm. that were out there, mm -hmm. um, and so through the training and through through my training and through training other people, I began to really understand that white people hurt mm -hmm. as well as us mm -hmm. when racism is happening, mm -hmm. because before it was, you know, you're hurting me, you have to listen to me, you have to change. Mm. you know and I don't want to know about your pain yeah, yeah and then I had this big realization you know that actually we're all hurting when this is happening mm, mm. and unless I incorporate ways of um, offering uh, knowledge and wisdom mm. to white people as well as black people mm. we can't work on our staff mm. they can't work on their staff and that divide can still continue yeah 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 I mean I guess that leads us on to your book, 
um, which very much talks about this area, black issues in the therapeutic process, which has had a big, big impact on me, um, just in terms of me thinking about that space that you're, talk, you're describing, the, the, the hurt on both sides. I mean, in terms of that book, I mean, how would you summarise that the content of that book and, and your process of writing it and the impact it's had that, that, that you can sort of see? Yeah. Um, the book really is about opening a dialogue on black issues. Oh, and I guess that term black issues as well, maybe just say a little bit more about that because, yeah, could, yeah just so yeah. people are clear. Yeah. And black issues for me is any situation or experience or concern that arises in the lives of people of African heritage mm-hmm. um, with with a black skin with with a black skin people of color yeah um, who are African or Asian yeah because we all experience racism because of our skin skin color mm-hmm. um, so there's been quite a lot of sort of what do you call it? A lashback or contradiction about the term black. Mm. And, you know, obviously we don't all come under that umbrella. Yeah. yeah. And not everybody calls themselves black. Sure. Um, and a lot of people question why black issues. Um, so I created that title because I wanted a sort of an umbrella term for um, the many concerns and experiences of mm. black people, which, mm. in, which include racism. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, when... One of the things that happened was um, when I was a, I became a lecturer mm-hmm. um, and worked on three or four different training courses, I found that um, the black students were fairly silent, like I was. Yeah. yeah. Um, and when I facilitated them to talk, um, there was often a problem that came from the white students, mm-hmm. which was, you know, why do you call yourself black? Oh, for, okay. for example. Yeah. yeah you know. Yeah. Um, you're making me feel bad because it wasn't me that done it. Right, okay. Yeah? Um, yeah. And that was on breaking a silence. There's usually a silence happened, but once I facilitated some kind of dialogue, mm-hmm. um, those were the kind of concerns that came out, yeah. you know, a confusion about who this who this applies to. Mm-hmm. So a Spanish woman might say, well, I'm black, you know, because I experience prejudice here. In the in the Western world, in in you know in the UK, mm-hmm. because I'm a foreigner, so I'm black too. Okay, and so there'd be lots of confusion about what was meant by the experience of a black person in a predominantly white society, mm. who who, in an ongoing way, experiences racism, both institutional yeah. and personal, yeah. and intergenerationally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so my first pieces of work were about you know concern about having you know people must have a dialogue about this Mm -hmm. and even if there are powerful feelings around it fear anger Mm -hmm. that have been sitting there that come out yeah that's part of the process you know but people were afraid of that process yeah you know um so that was my that was my main initial concern that training courses should include somebody who will facilitate that process? Right. And I was I was finding that I was that somebody mm-hmm. because white tutors were scared to do it. Yeah. We all had the same training. We didn't have the same experience, but they were afraid to, 
to do this facilitation. Yes. And I would initiate it, and then they would sort of say, well, I'm so glad you, you've done that. Yeah, you yeah. know, <laughs> I said, well, why aren't you doing it, you know? Because, they, so, because they, you know, there, there would be trainers who have been training for years, who are competent, yeah. um, very respected, <laughs> yeah. very, very capable. But yeah. this area seemed to be, this one area of black issues just seemed to be quite toxic and that's no, right. no one wanted to go in there no and it was dangerous but they you but dangerous. you went in but you went in um and they were relieved they were relieved someone had yeah because yeah. i was at the front opening the door for them yeah you know yeah. um so out of this concern came um an understanding that training needed to change mm. the training needed to change because if this was happening in the, on training courses then it would surely be happening in the consulting room. Sure. Yeah. 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 Be passed down. Yeah. That's right. And there was also an intergenerational context that um, senior practitioners who were the trainers mm. and the supervisors were also silent. Mm. You know, they were not facilitating this process whereby students, any students, both white and black, mm. could facilitate discussions about being black, not just the difficult things the racist thing mm. but also about the important areas of our lives mm. that get dismissed as part as part of us you know like mm. my childhood wasn't talked about mm. my black father having a black identity wasn't spoken about mm. you mm. know mm. so at what stage in your life are you able to process mm. what it means to be a black person in in a predominantly white society mm. where everything is geared most things are geared up to uh, being white and Eurocentric, including mm. the theory that we learned mm. Mm. for um, as as trainers and as counsellors. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and you've also written another book. You've co-authored another book, um, "In Search of Mister Mackenzie," which was your first book. Yes, it was a quest for an unknown father. That's right. Um, it was a very personal book, and you've been very personal um, just talking right now. So. But I mean, how was it to sort of bring your personal part, you know, your personal self into the public domain? It sounds very easy. As you, yeah. um, you, you find it really easy right now. But I, was that? A, I guess that was a process. Was that the beginning of the um, process for you, or were you always giving that part of yourself out? Yeah. No. I mean, as I said, as a child, I didn't yeah. talk. I didn't have conversation. I didn't know what discussion was I mm. went to school felt and felt illiterate I didn't know general knowledge yeah, sort of. I felt inadequate I felt unintelligent and I wanted to do things with my hands because I didn't even know I had a brain right um, but I was always creative so okay. I, I painted and I wrote poetry as a child yeah. for myself yes yeah and I was good at pottery um so how the world worked all the things that were going on out there were kind of you were sheltered from it somewhere. Uh, I was sheltered yeah. from all that. I didn't yeah. didn't really know what you know A from B really. Yeah, so you had your creativity, um, which you, which was which gave you a kind of an outlet or, or way of expressing yourself. It did. Yeah, yeah, and I, and 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 I understood it because it was yeah. mine. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, so what happened was that uh, when I went out there uh, around the age of thirteen, started to do youth work realised I had a value out there. Mm. And I was very much encouraged by the black men who were running the youth club. Mm. You know, they were academics, um, and, you know, people who were professionals, and they encouraged me with my life as mm. well. Okay. Um, and and so... And then I, I started to um, think about who am I? 
I went to Polytechnic of the South Bank to do a degree mm-hmm. in social sciences around the age of 30, I think it was. All and, right. and I realised there was Karl Marx. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I realised that there was this thing that, that they called um, the underdeveloped world. Mm. And I that that somehow got to me. I didn't like that title, underdeveloped world. Mm. I know it's it's now changed a bit now to developing world, mm. but things like that, I I started to question. Mm. I still felt very inadequate, even though I had passed my O levels. Mm. I still felt very inadequate when I went into the university, mm. and but I started to question why 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 is it underdeveloped. And why aren't we actually talking about the beauties of Africa mm. in this seminar? Um, so I was a bit of a thorn in the side of the lecturers. Mm-hmm. I became a bit um, sort of, of a troublemaker. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there were, a few, there were a few other black students there as well. Mm. And they had an association for black students. Right. So I began to realise that I'm okay as I am. Mm. You know, mm. we, we have a network. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the first time... I realised that I had something to say. Yes. Um, and then joining some of the women's groups that I had, I began to talk about myself. Yes, yes. Um, and then I started to write about bits um, bits of my life. Mm-hmm. And there was um, a black woman who was um, a member of Sheba Press. Okay. Which, which back in the, the yeah. early, late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, yeah. And uh, she said, she said, we were just in a conversation one day. She said, so what are you writing? And I told her, I was, I wrote this chapter called Yearning to Belong, which yeah. was about me, really, and okay. my past. And she said, well, give me the manuscript and, and I'll see if our publishers might be interested. And I yeah. thought, what? <laughs> Someone's interested in what I've written. Right, right. Yeah. And so she took it to Sheba and yeah. they published it in a book called Charting the Journey. Yeah. Um, and then they had, they had another chapter. And then people started asking me, well, because, you know, when you when you write a chapter in a book like that and they do readings. Yes. And after that, like, people start to know you. And yes. they say, would you like to write something for that, for this this yeah, anthology? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I've heard you write poetry. Would you like to, you know, so that kind of happened. And that was sort of, uh, I don't know, organically, mm. my, <laughs> my business... <laughs> My dirty linen yeah, came <laughs> into the public eye. Yeah, yeah. And but it was attracting interest. It was attracting people who said, "Well, I want to find out about my dad. We, mm. He's he's nearly eighty, and we've never spoken about his background. Mm. And listening to what you're saying mm. has given me the inspiration to talk to my parents about their background in the mm. Caribbean, about mm. their background in Africa, mm. before anything happens and I don't get this chance." Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, having my book, In Search of Mr. Mackenzie, mm-hmm. which I wrote with my sister at the point where we thought, we don't know enough about our deceased father yes. and about his background and, you know, who was there, mm-hmm. our ancestors, mm-hmm. our our other the other part of our community. Mm-hmm. And then we started talking because he, um, he was a Pan-Africanist. Right. And he was a, a member of, the, he was a delegate of the Fifth Pan-African Conference, Congress. Oh, wow. Which happened in Manchester. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, we have a photo of him with Amy Garvey, um, Padmore, George Padmore, Dubois. Oh, right. And okay. the whole lot of um, 
Wow. Which we matched with, through a series of um, contacts, we matched with uh, a woman that we found in Trinidad who had the same picture and it turned out to be our sister. Oh. And so that was how the book In Search yeah. of Mr. Mackenzie was born. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so people who have researched about me, some of the clients come to me and say, I've read your book. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about my family background. Yeah. I want to talk about my heritage. And I'm inspired because I I don't know much about my background. Or I do and I want to find information about more about it. Mm. Or I want to find out how that's impacted on who I am now. Mm. Or I'm having family issues. Mm. And that's also about, you know, separation and mm. identity. And, mm. um, and so... Having a book in the, in the, you know, having my personal stuff out there seemed to attract peers, mm. you know, and it wasn't deliberate, but it happened. Mm. And I feel like, you know, my story has been highly respected, mm. you know, and that I've been able to um, be a therapist, but not be seen as this um, abandoned child who doesn't know much about love. Mm. who's sitting in the role of a therapist mm. I'm seen as someone who's overcome that mm. you mm. know mm. and striven to to be who I want to be mm. in spite of what I didn't have mm. yeah bringing yourself out there into the world and your you know the private your private life has given you something back that you weren't really expecting but yet has been really really powerful people have have identified with your story because I don't think there are many stories like that. When they do come, um, they attract a lot, and they contribute to the, you know, the, the general um, conversation around psychological life of black people generally, anyway. Yeah. And I've certainly found talking to you really powerful, and the way that you bring your personal self into into the work is really what makes it really strong. Yeah. <laughs> um, and really passionate. So I'm really glad that you brought that bit to us. What projects and plans do you have for the future? So things that you sort of feel excited about. Mm. You've had a long journey. I know you've, right now, you're sort of going through a, a transition. You're ending sort of lectureships. I mean, what's next for you? Oh, what's next? Um, well, I'm off to Tobago um, okay. in the winter to stay warm. I want to get back to my creative writing. Yeah. Uh, because that's sort of been pushed out of the way while I've been busy doing academic writing, focusing on the book, um, and being being a lecturer, marking yeah. papers, etc. So I want I want less of that. Um, but what I'm going to do is possibly write a second book, a follow up okay. to Black Issues in the Therapeutic Process. The publishers have shown some interest already already. It's an ongoing process. I mean yeah. the first book was really powerful, but I guess there are other things that sort of come and yeah. develop the themes. Yeah. Well, I think what needs to come next is some more um, understanding about uh, working, practicing with black issues. Right. And the supervision of black issues. Okay, yes. Um, and yeah. that's come out of running a transcultural supervision group for a couple of years mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. it's clear that um, therapists have come to this group because they have had difficulties with with their uh, regular supervisors, mm-hmm. who are usually white people, mm-hmm. in, in taking black issues to them, mm-hmm. or um, 
you know, issues that come about that they felt they couldn't talk about mm. anywhere else. Mm. And so I feel like, you know, if I can um, consolidate mm. some useful information about the practice and supervision of black issues, then mm. that should come next. Mm. You know, going to Trinidad is great. We're going to miss you, but it sounds like you'll still be contributing and writing and so it looks like we've got more to look forward to there's more to look you, forward to which is great we've almost run out of time if listeners wanted to know more about your ideas obviously they could buy your book but i know that you're also coming back to the uk to run some more black issues in a therapeutic process workshops there's the sort of the part one which is happening sometime soon. When is that happening? The... Uh, part, part one will be happening next year. I think it starts in May. In May, okay. Yeah, yeah. So if people wanted um, to go to go to that, I mean, where would they go? They can contact um, Metanoia Institute. Okay. Um, and... Um, will it be on your website as well? Or it'll be on the website. Okay, so they can go to your website yes. to find out the details. Yeah. Yep. There's a, a Black Issues seminar, which is like going deeper, like yes. part two, yes. which is happening in the UK in June. Yes, that starts in around June. In around yes. June. Yeah. And, and if people wanted to go to that, they could go to the, um, the Barton website. That's right. Like an therapist website and find the details out there. We've run out of time. But to finish off, um, you've got a lot more work to do, it sounds like, and there's, there's another book which we're looking forward to. When your work is done and you're, you've passed away, <laughs> you're no longer here on this earth, I mean, what would you like to have inscribed on your headstone? What, would, what, what, what do you think could be there that yeah. would sum up your contribution, I guess, or you? Well, a line comes to me, which is faith in the process of identity makes us whole. Hmm. Lovely. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Thank Aisha, thank you. Yeah, thank you. That was Dr. Aisha Mackenzie Mavinga talking about her life and work. I hope you can join me for the next podcast where I'll be in conversation with Dr. Sanjay Jobanputra, who is a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Westminster and who has researched the experiences of black and minority ethnic students studying psychology in higher education for the past 20 years. Until then, goodbye.